Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. There are a whole bunch of other countries groupings around the world that we should actually be looking more to. If you look at the East Asian tiger economies like Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, those sort of countries, they're actually leading the way whether in, in health, in education, in economic growth. Um, Singapore's GDP per capita is now higher than Australia's. It's, we shouldn't be thinking them as emerging or developing countries. They're actually more developed than we are in a lot of senses. Those are the insightful words of Andrew Ware. Andrew is Director of Economic Development at the City of Melbourne. He's had a decorated career as a senior public servant and is the author of the recently released book Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems and We Can Too. As a former policy person and obsessive problem solver myself, I really liked Andrew's research approach, his innovative perspective, and how he's gone about putting together this collection of global insights on how to solve some of the world's most wicked problems. This is well surmised by author and journalist Annabel Crabb, who also appeared to enjoy Andrew's work, saying, In a time of chaos, there are answers all around us if we take a time to look, which is exactly what Weir does in this invaluable book. Before we get started, a quick shout out to our Patreon community, including new members Clyde and Susie. Both Clyde and Susie are doing wonderful work in the community, so it's great to have new Patreon members on board who are so well aligned with what we're aiming to do at Humans of Purpose. So a big thank you to Clyde, Susie, and as always, Carmen Times 2, Misha Times 2, Jules, Levi, Sue, Tanvir, Sally, McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will for your very kind support, sounding more and more like the Smurfs every week. This amazing group helps me to shape the direction of the podcast through their advice, ideas, ongoing feedback, and importantly, guest referrals. Your monthly $4 or notional coffee donation of support for Humans of Purpose goes directly toward covering the costs of production and helping to elevate and showcase the work of people who are having a major social impact through their work right here in Australia. To support us, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose. This podcast with Andrew was recorded in mid-March, just prior to going into lockdown and social distancing restrictions. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew as much as I did and have a look in the show notes for more about Andrew's book and where you might like to buy it um, and links to do so if you wish to. All right, enjoy the podcast. So I'm absolutely thrilled under the uh, clouded circumstances of social distancing to have Andrew at my home. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Mike. Real pleasure to be here. I'm glad that we're just, this is one thing that we can continue without too much uh, fear or regret, hopefully. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. We'll just keep our distance, eh? Yeah. I didn't want to relegate you to the confines of Zoom. I find, you know, there's so much to gain from the exchange in person. Yeah, so no. really happy you could make it. Absolutely. Um, so where to kick off? I mean, I'd love to hear sort of in your own words a little bit about your own journey. I'm excited to dive into some other aspects of uh, the wonderful work you're doing. Take me back um, to the days uh, when, when you were sort of deciding what you wanted to do, making those decisions, and then sort of, you know, um, as eloquently as you can within the confines of reasonable time yeah. <laughs> up until now when you're a published author. Yeah, well, I guess the journey goes probably back 20 years when I um – 
I finished school and and got got the marks to do a law degree as you do uh, as and I, you did as well I believe um, uh, later later yeah <laughs> <laughs> ended up doing uh, doing commerce law at Melbourne at Melbourne University and got a traineeship with a big four big five accounting firm back then and I did that for a year um, as an as a trainee auditor and sort of enjoyed that experience but worked out pretty quickly that that very commercially focused profit driven environment really wasn't wasn't really where my passion was where my motivation was um and i found myself in my spare time at doing that job going out and reading books about politics and uh and and public policy and 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 really was drawn to that bigger bigger picture perspective on purpose ultimately which was how do i how do i leave the world a little bit better than i found it how do i make a contribution and government and policy was for me the way that I could probably I felt most drawn to and and compelled compelled to actually contribute to and so I quickly changed my degree to an arts law degree studied politics um, loved that and and then ended up ultimately in a government career for the past twenty years um, with the Victorian government I'm soon be starting with the city of Melbourne uh, in in state in local government. Um, but I, I really do believe passionately that government has a really, really important role to play. Uh, it doesn't always play that role, but it has a really important role to play. And uh, in some small way, I hope to be con- making a contribution to that. Um, but, you know, like after a while, it's Im- it's important not just to be a cog in the wheel of a b- big bureaucracy. And it is easy to find yourself... Um, Churning through the work as a as a functionary in a, in a broad, bigger machine, and those bigger questions of how do we imp- how do we make a difference and improve the world never really go away, or never really went away for me. Uh, and I found myself exploring, asking those questions, and, and ultimately compelled to research and, and write a book, ask, investigating really which countries in the world are doing a great job at, at tackling most of the world's biggest problems and, and was delighted to find ultimately that no matter what problem you look at, there, there is a country and a government successfully dealing with it. And if we only broadened our horizon a little bit, we could, we could learn from that experience as well. That's very well said. I want to talk a lot about that, but I also don't want to dive in too soon to the to the book. Sure, no. Uh, you've had you've had a pretty incredible career. You've done some terrific things. You've gone to the Harvard Harvard Kennedy School of Government, um, like a, a number of our wonderful podcast guests. What what does an experience like that kind of teach you? And sort of, what do you come away with from that kind of experience? Well. It's interesting when you go to an experience like that. You spend a month at, at Harvard uh, with some of the best and brightest minds, and the faculty is incredible. The teaching's amazing, but the thing that I was left with more than anything else was the experience of spending time with my fellow students. Some of really impressive, intelligent people from all over the world. You know, wandering back to our apartment having a chat with a chief chief economist from Mongolia and you know and and just random experiences like that and senior people in the defense force in the U, in the US and 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 that perspective of being able to firstly be global and thinking about sharing sharing our problems from from different countries we were dealing with uh, but yet we were dealing with public policy questions and public leadership questions uh, in a very similar way and so it made every sense to adopt a global perspective to learn from each other. And I, I took that away in particular. I think that's a really important perspective is that nothing we do here is 
particularly unique in the sense that we're all human and we all and we're all dealing with very similar problems and we should all learn from each other. So, I mean, that really makes me think a bit about your perspective, which it looks like you've applied throughout a lot of your career and now in the book as well of um, not keeping the gaze at eye level, but looking up and sort of seeing the the broader global context and seeing the world maybe as a, a collection of different ways of tackling um, similar problems and sometimes different problems. Yeah, well, I think that's right. I think certainly the way I look at the world anyway, and I'm not saying everyone needs to or is inclined to look at the world like this, but it's... Unless, um, you, unless you can stand back and look at the problem in a, in a broader sense and know what the strategy is and why you're doing what you're doing, to what end, to what purpose, and what outcomes are we hoping to achieve, um, only then can I, will I personally be convinced that it makes sense and that I should apply myself wholeheartedly to it. And, and that's a theme that really emerges quite consistently in my career. I want to be persuaded that what I'm doing makes sense and is actually going to achieve an outcome that is material and and, and significant. Yeah. And to do that, often you need to stand back and actually ask some of those bigger questions. Yeah, I think what you're describing um, may align with a metaphor that I like to use quite often, uh, the difference between working in the machine and on the machine. Mm. So be, being stuck maybe in the circuitry in the machine, you can't see the broader context, but mm. if you sort of step out of the machine and you're working on it, um, you can maybe sort of see the sum of its parts and that whole cycle journey from beginning to kind of um, to middling to, to end to revision and improvement. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think the ultimate way of working on the machine and stepping out of it is is to, to, to adopt a global perspective to ask Ask yourself, uh, how does what we're doing marry up with what the rest of the world's doing? What results are they getting? What results are we getting? And I think that's the ultimate. I mean, you can't stand back, stand back much further than that in the end. So, Let's talk a little bit about thought leadership in the public sector because I think um, when we first um, got in touch with each other, I was really impressed. I hadn't seen many public servants kind of stepping away um, a little bit from, from the role or not stepping away but just – having a different sideline and maybe looking at things a very different way and speaking mm. out about different ways of seeing the world and as you did with your um, with your book Solved. Mm. Um, what was that like and did, do you think maybe yeah, another way to sort of shape it a bit as well was did you have to reach a certain point in your career seniority-wise before that was possible? Yeah, I don't know. I think in a way writing, writing a book and adopt, having a public voice as a public servant is a risky proposition in a, in a lot of ways and I was very conscious of that all the way through um, but also very cons- – I, I gave it a lot of thought and one of the things in writing a book about global public policy and what other countries are doing, it, it gave me reason not to drill down into an analysis of – of Victorian public policy or or Australian even Australian public policy too much. So I, I explicitly did not seek go, seek to be critical or even too analytical about the role of public policy in Victoria or Australia. Uh, public servants generally are supposed to provide frank and fearless advice through the internal channels, um, not through not through external channels. So it was not my intent to be critical of of any government in Australia. But it's but at the same time, I think there is merit. In, in the right way and in the right context and with the right content in public servants contributing to public, public debate and discussion. Um, public servants have a lot to contribute. Um, 
But I suppose there, there's that um, key distinction between being a political uh, speaker mm. and being somebody who's a, a policy speaker, which gets blurred in certain areas. Like I think asylum seekers might be one example of where it gets very yeah. blurred and risky. Yeah. But where you're talking about um, problem solving and um, on the working in the um, on the machine context, like global mm. approaches to solving complex problems, that would be super interesting. Does it get grainy though when you're um, reflecting that back to Australia in the context locally. There's, there's always a fine line. And yeah. I think I was very, very conscious of that. Um, but I think adopting an evidence-based approach, focus on the policy rather than on the politics. Yeah. Um, and you're always in good company when you've got the major international organisations like the OECD and the World Bank and the IMF um, in your court aligning with p- policy objectives. It's uh, it's not like you're going out on your own adopting a polemical approach mm. to um, to to a, a critique of government in Australia. It's really saying around the world, this is what good good policy looks like. This is what success countries that are successfully dealing with these problems are, are adopting this approach using this evidence. And and here's the uh, here's the uh the academic work and the and the and the work from the international organizations to back that up and support it. You're in pretty safe territory when you're in that space without getting too political. And um it's always, always a fine line. And you asked me if you needed to reach a certain degree of seniority in order to pull that off. I don't think it was the seniority per se. It's probably the the length of time that I've been in the bureaucracy probably and gave me enough experience and enough judgment, I hope, to successfully walk that fine line and, and with enough nuance to be able to be expressing a view about broader policy without uh, without being critical of, of gov- any government that I might work for, for example. Do you think um, government can be a bit oversensitive and should there be a bit more freedom of speech for people who work in the bureaucracies to have a voice, given that the bureaucracies do attract highly intelligent people a lot of the time who are committed to doing good and social justice? Should there be more flexibility? Well, I think traditionally um, we're – Public servants were engaging in public debate. It was traditionally to 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 explain government policy, um, and I think that's that's right to explain the policy of the day to people in to people in the country in Australia. But I think there's probably a slightly I'd probably extend that slightly. It's to explain not just policy of the government of the day, but explain policy as it applies uh, in a best practice sense. F- drawing on the lessons from around the world. And if public servants can help explain what does good practice policy, public policy look like uh, and help bring the, help explain to the public why good practice public policy uh, is a certain mm. way, then that's contributing, I think, to the quality of debate and understanding in Australia about about public policy oh, and, totally and changing debate in a little bit. A I suppose ways. I'm being a little bit coy and uh, poking at the at the places that I know are a bit uncertain or risque. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm being a provocateur. I've been accused of being that my whole life. But um, it's, a, it's a curious space because then you think, you know, like I think what you're saying is really sound and I haven't put, heard it put to me like that before. So focusing on evidence-based policy as, as sort of the the main game, and then deviating from that where necessary or making comparisons from that. You can't go too wrong, can you? Because you're just sort of pointing out what is global best practice. Yeah. And in, look, frankly, and in most of 
in the book when I was when I was exploring things, most of the the arguments that I was putting, a lot of them weren't my arguments. They were the arguments of the people I interviewed. For example, I let them speak with their own voice, yep. or they were the arguments of the academics or the other analysts who uh, whose um, papers I, or publications that I drew on. Um, and really, I was pointing the reader pointing the reader to other sources of authority because I'm not an expert on all public policy and I didn't really ever want to represent myself to be, but merely as someone who's curious and able to assemble some really good uh, stories uh, and some and some data and some analysis from, from a range of authoritative sources. And I think that, that for me, was always a much safer space than, than going out and, and um, being a polemicist. Oh, 100%. I mean, I couldn't see you standing up banging the drum and holding a placard saying everyone should believe this. I yeah. think it's a much more sensible way to yeah. try and influence opinion. I'm curious, what, what was the journey like to authorship and did you always know you wanted to write a book? Well, it's, it had been brewing for a long, long time. Mm. Uh, my The notion of putting, putting pen to paper and assembling some – and I, in a lot of ways, writing the writing the book wasn't so much about the book per se. It was about the research and the ideas in the first place. The first audience for this book, really, that I was actually thinking of when I was writing it was myself. I wanted to know what did good practice public policy look like in every single major policy domain so that if I was ever advocating within government for it, I knew what I was going to be advocating for. It was a bit of bit of first principles research, you know, that I the, and writing the book was an excuse to do that and to speak with some really impressive people and and learn and learning first and foremost. Mm. I'm like I was cu- I'm a curious person. I love learning and that was a good excuse to do that. But in the end I've been talking about it for a couple of years and my wife said just bloody well get on and write a book. <laughs> and did, um that's that's quite funny. So you've been talking about it so much she was on board. Well, it was more a case of write a proposal. Yeah. Let's see if you get any traction. Yeah. If you don't get any traction, stop talking about it. <laughs> uh, if you do get traction, then write a book. You know, and so I, I spent a I spent a good nine months writing a writing a proposal and getting that really solid and and in the end, through some good networks, found an agent and a and a and a publisher picked it up, um, and away we went. And uh, it's been the the actual journey of writing it was a pleasure. You know, the, the notion of and you do a little bit of this as well, I suspect is is cold calling people and uh, oh. people you've people you've never met, asking to have a conversation and. There's, there's so much excitement and pleasure and joy in in that experience, and that I, I really really enjoyed that experience. And the book almost wrote itself in the end. It was it was actually a six month process, and and, and six the, months, yeah. And that's whilst working full time and having four kids. And it was four kids, yeah. So um, you know, it, there was a lot of five a.m.s and late nights. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. There's yeah. a lot of hard work in there, but but it. Did not feel at anything like, anything like the painful experience of writing a thesis so uh, why, at uni. It was more. It was a, it was a joy to do. Yeah, I mean, it's it's when looking at you. I mean, it, it seems like it's something you love doing. But I heard a um, you heard of Ryan Holiday before. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Speaking of Google, I was just listening to his podcast, and yeah. he says about writing a book that you should just you should try and not do it as much as you can, and you should only do it if that's your only remaining option after like a few years. Mm. If you can't get it out of your head, um, mm. the idea, and it's still with you, and it's the only thing you can do is to write the book to get exercise it. Yeah, I agree with that. This was a compulsion for me. I, yeah. I really, I really did feel like I needed to needed to do it. Yeah, mm. but but I mean, it, so he he just talks about how like it's giving like giving birth kind of painful in terms of like that process. And you know it's quite hard. You seem to really enjoy it. It didn't feel painful. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, 
I mean, it's six months to a first draft, mm. and then there was, and then there was, the editing process was longer and more extensive than I was expecting. Yeah. Uh, and the editing editing process was amazing, but I had no understanding or expe- or, or 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 expectation of what was about to come when yeah. it came to the editing process, and that really lifted the standard massively. And I, you've got to give credit to editors, I think. Wow. But um, it didn't feel painful. It was. It was. Was yeah, it was something that I really, really enjoyed doing. Yeah, so it's obviously something you've wanted to do um, for a long time, and then you've done it. And sort of what happens, you know, you release this um, this book that's sort of wholly optimistic in, in its lens, and then we have bushfires, and then COVID. Yeah, but I think that's that's the point in a way. Is this regardless of the the world always faces challenges. I mean, we've we face climate change. We've 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 we face. Uh, uh, inequality, we face all sorts of challenges, mm. and there's no shortage of challenges. Um, and bushfires and pandemics, and and they're, they're they're challenges. But the point really is that the solutions to actually dealing with these challenges exist. We should feel optimistic that we, as humans, have the capability and the knowledge and the and the and the policies to actually deal with these problems. We shouldn't feel vulnerable. I mean, we shouldn't feel. Uh, insecure and feeling like we don't know what to do we because if you look around the world you see countries that are doing a really successful job and even in, even in the, the the covid example you can see some countries have done a uh, some countries are really struggling other countries have really been on the front foot responding re- responding well at the end of this australia will come out the other side the world will come out the other side and i think it's probably a good opportunity to look around and go what should we have learned from that? What should we learn from that experience, from both from our own experience in Australia, but also from the experience of what others did elsewhere in the world? And I suspect we'll see that countries like some of those East Asian countries, such as uh, Taiwan and Singapore and Korea and Japan, um, did an did an impressive job in limiting spread, and um, and uh, some of the um, Scandinavian countries, I suspect, did a really good job in. Mitigating the um, the impact on affected workers, you know, and so there, there'll be all sorts of things that we should learn from that experience. And I think, uh, you know, we the point really is that some some countries have got got a good handle on things, and some countries have got a less good. But if we if we learn from the best, that we can only we can only raise our own our own standards. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I suppose the way I phrased that. Uh statement or question whatever it was was probably misleading i love that you've written this book now because i think the world more than ever needs a book like this that's optimistic in its outlook that looks at the good things that countries are doing um that is kind of the opposite of what we see is the news cycle which is sort of panic um press conference panic whatsapp groups more and more kind of uh reflective panic it's good to kind of stand back and sort of say Hey, did you know that Portugal has an excellent harm minimization regime, and here's why? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is one of the the catalysts that finally got me over the line to writing this book was I remember standing in a bookshop in St Kilda on a sunny Saturday afternoon in the current affairs section, and you know, and just seeing that I reckon ninety eight percent of the books in that section were all about problems, oh yeah, and about how how much doom and gloom the world was facing in terms of inequality or climate change or racism or or, or Donald Trump or, or whatever was facing yeah. the world, and it was really really quite depressing. And then you go over and you look at the the business section or the self help section. And all over there, it's no matter what the problem is, you can do it. You know, you've, here are the strategies. Just need to have the right mindset. Yeah. And you can change the world. Yeah. And I thought, 
why don't we bring a bit of that over into the politics oh, section? And, yeah, and you've hit the you've hit the, hammer, the nail on the head. I mean, I I mainly used to buy from that um, self help and business section, not because the content was interesting, but just because it was more uplifting. Yeah, that's an enjoyable read. Um, some of that other stuff I really liked, but it's dense. I mean, it, you want to hear about um, and it's how, depressing. It, it's depressing. <laughs> it doesn't leave you feeling good or uh, mobilized or like you can do anything. Mm. I think the beauty of um, what it sounds like with Solved is you, you're painting a picture of examples globally where things are going really well and it's kind of a what what can we decide to learn from this collectively yeah, yeah that's right and i think i think telling people how bad everything is isn't the way to motivate people i think mm. people are motivated by optimism and sense of possibility uh i think that's a much more powerful way to actually motivate and drive change. So, uh, so that was what I wanted to do. Hundred percent. And so, in your um, extensive research study in the book itself, do you have a couple of favourite examples of um, things that are going really well for other countries in, the, in their policy domain? Yeah, there's a few favourites. I mean, one of one of my favourites was a bit of a quirky one, which was in the UK, um, where they've reduced violent crime by seventy five percent since the nineteen nineties. Well, it's phenomenal, staggering. They've got the lowest homicide rate in the world. But this, I'll just tell you a bit of a story about that one because, you know, what I spoke with this one guy who's an oral and maxillofacial surgeon working in an emergency ward, dealing with people who's, who, who get smashed up after violent fights on the weekend sort of thing. And what he discovered when he did his PhD research was that the police were unaware of 75% of all violence because people didn't go to the police. But you go to the emergency ward, they're aware of all violence. So if you want to get good data about where violence is happening, you go and get it from the emergency ward. But, but you combine that data with the knowledge of and the and the work of the police and 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 the powers of the liquor licensing authorities and you're working in a collaborative in a partnership based approach you can get really good data right down to the the street corner about where all the violence is happening and you can come up with strategies which might be better street lighting or or stuff like that to reduce crime and it's quite sophisticated and nuanced this same guy found out that um there were the Everyone was getting glassed in the face from broken pint glasses in drunken drunken pub fights. And he went and tested all the different types of pint glasses. He discovered that there was one particular type that was was causing most of the damage. And he persuaded a number of pubs to change to tempered glass rather than rather than actual glass um, in a randomized control trial. Got some success. Then ultimately went and persuaded all of the pubs in the UK to change to tempered glass. And there were tens of thousands fewer glassings every year as a result of just this one guy making that change with the with the pubs and um it was quite a great quite a great story that's really interesting so i'm, I'm curious just from my own sense of, of the world and how things are changing and how government designs interventions how many of the, your favorite examples were nudge style behavioral economics derived interventions versus um traditional policy planning yeah None, nudge, nudge is obviously very important. None of them, none of them, are particularly, um, particularly emerged particularly strongly in the work that I did. Um, there were some definitely thinking about human behaviour is one. I mean, say that violence example. The, the, the common, the theme that emerges throughout the UK is that people, that violence is a, is largely a spontaneous activity. And so what you do is you take the um, the implement out of the equation, whether that be a pint glass or whether that be a gun or whether that be a knife or whether that be you know building rubble. Darkness potentially. Yeah, yeah you just take that out of the equation yep. so that when violence does happen, it does less damage. Yep. You know, and 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 that approach is actually 
really interesting, I think. And, um, and yeah, so that so it, you gave us a that's a great UK example. Can yeah. you give us one from maybe a, a, a place we're not as familiar with, like some something in Asia, maybe yeah. Africa? Well, well, South Korea was a really interesting one, um, and it's really interesting. I think in the context of the COVID nineteen stuff at the moment, they have extraordinarily impressive health outcomes. Uh, very very soon, South Korean women will live to over ninety. They'll uh, oh they'll have the longest life expectancy in the world, but yet. In the 1950s, after the Korean War, they had life expectancies in you know 50 something, and and they've expanded their life expectancy by 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 decades. Uh, it's quite incredible. And one of the things that makes the big difference there is that they have a an incredibly technologically savvy healthcare system with some of the best hospitals in the world. Are in three out of the top ten world hospitals uh, are in are in Seoul, for example. They've got some amazing healthcare systems. The best. But they also have a traditional diet, and that's the thing that makes all the difference in South Korea. Is you have world's best healthcare systems combined with a traditional diet, which means you don't have obesity, you don't have as much heart disease, you don't have as much diabetes, you don't have as much stroke. Um, they're all the things that are killing people in countries like Australia and the UK and the US. Um, life expectancy in the US has gone backwards over the last mm. ten years, and so um, there's. A, I think there's a lot to learn there for us about. What happens when economic development reaches a point where we we might be able to invest in great healthcare systems, but we sabotage it a little bit with um, sort of self-induced uh, chronic illness that's brought about through lifestyle and diet, and and how, what sort of interventions can we do to change that? The South Koreans, for example, uh, fund. Uh, Lunches in every school with where they eat traditional traditional Korean lunches and teach the kids how to how to eat traditional Korean food, which is high in vegetables and that sort of thing. So there's some there's something to learn there. I think. Have you been before to South Korea? I've never been to South oh, Korea. You have to go. It's yeah. a it's a remarkable experience and how different things can be. Mm. I went there a couple of um, it been 2017 maybe, and I was just staggered by how efficiently, um, spotlessly, and kind of nicely everything operates. Yeah. So that in a lot of South Korean places, they have people who are employed just to tell you where to stand at any given time. <laughs> so it's not enough that there's markings on the floor to tell you, you know, the right distance between another person in front of you, but there's a person who's like a, a people flow conductor. <laughs> so you kind of get this incredible sense of social harmony when you go to a place like yeah. South Korea that's very actually quite similar to Japan too yeah. and Singapore where kind of movement is kind of like a school of fish in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a general theme that I would argue is that although Australia has traditionally looked to the US and the UK mm. and other countries like that as for, for policy inspiration, actually there are a whole bunch of other countries groupings around the world that we should actually be looking more yeah. to. If you look at the East Asian tiger economies like mm. Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, those sort of mm. countries, mm. they're actually leading the way whether in, in health, in education, in economic growth. Um, Singapore's GDP per capita is now higher than Australia's. Mm. We shouldn't be thinking them as emerging or developing countries. They're actually more developed than we are in a lot of senses. Oh, 100%. They're fascinating countries to watch. And I know certainly in the health um, and health information space, Singapore and South Korea and sort of public health are, um, are key places to keep watching.
Mm. So, so a theme that sort of does run through your book a lot is trust in institutions, and I know it's something that you're mm. passionate about as well. And we've had Stephen Spur from Edelman on um, previously to talk a bit about you know the Edelman Trust Poll that's run every year, and um, you know it, it, I suppose there's no big surprises as an Australian that we've lost trust a bit in government, politicians, mm. business. The only sector that I think media as well, the only sector that remains a bit untouched is the not-for-profit community sector. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make of all of that, and kind of? What it, what happens to the social contract when all these institutions sort of are fall by the wayside a bit in terms of our own trust level? Yeah, it's, it's trust is a really critical thing, um, and it's quite an elusive and fragile thing too in a lot of ways. And I think we need to, in government and and elsewhere, and for everyone in society, we need to be thinking about how do we build and maintain trust, and it matters because whether it be through Denmark's ability to maintain a, a bipartisan approach to carbon carbon mitigation or the approach or the difference that not trusting police makes in in the ability of police to uh, fight crime if people aren't reporting crime to police because they don't trust them mm. crime actually increases mm. uh, it, you know whether or even the ability of uh, public health authorities to deal with pandemics, as we've seen, if people don't trust that government know what they're doing, they're much less likely to um, take it seriously. And and so trust absolutely matters and it runs through everything we, we do. And partly, and I don't think there's any easy, any easy answers mm-hmm. to that, And but it relies on consistency and quality of, of governance Um and is trust like? Would you say trust is a mediator of how successful policy interventions or implementations can be? Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, trust, lack of trust, is both the outcome of poor policy, but it's also lack of trust also contributes to policy to policy outcomes being poorer. You know, so it's it's one of those one of those chicken and egg problems that you have with trust. I think in and, and which is why it's so fragile and why. I think for us in government to be always thinking about what do our interventions do to build or sustain trust. I mean, one of the things, for example, I saw in in Denmark is that essentially everyone in Denmark gets their news from two two publicly funded TV stations. Uh, So everyone's having the same, regardless of their political divergence of views. So there's plenty of divergence of views, but they're all talking to each other in the same place rather than off talking to people who share the same views in very fragmented places. And I think that's an interesting approach in the sense that it it, it forces a public dialogue and, and of respectful debate and discussion in and so that people of different views are actually coming together to have a conversation. I think how we can facilitate that in a better way in Australia might be something for us to think about and maybe not be only through state-owned media. I mean, that's probably not going to fly in Australia, but but the creation of places where debate and respectful discussion can take place with all of us, regardless of our views, I think is really, really important. 100%. And I think one thing that you raised there that I find really interesting is the importance of listening to those we disagree with and having mm. the conversations with them because, you know, um, you don't make peace with your friends and, yeah. you know, you can all have the same views and, you know, happily frolic in those views. But it sort of seems like there's a lot of learning lost there and 
where curiosity really finds a home and a, a place to, to uh, thrive is where you're speaking to those um, who you may not know whether you agree or disagree with or you or that you think you disagree with, but you don't maybe know enough about those views. I think you're absolutely on the money there. And I think when it comes to big some of those big policy issues like, like climate change, I think a lot of the answer and a lot of the way home lies with actually having a conversation with with people who haven't necessarily drunk the Kool-Aid, uh, uh, yeah, who aren't necessarily on board with climate change as a great moral crusade, who actually who might be just average everyday people getting on and living their lives and concerned about their family. And, and what can we, what sort of conversations can we have with people who have different lived experiences or different concerns and who, who might not be passionate environmentalists and, and those, that's, I think there's a lot of power in that approach and thinking because everyone brings something different to a conversation. And if we can find out what resonates, uh, that's really, really quite potential. Build, that, that'll enable us to build a coalition of people who can talk to each other and, and, and who might potentially just be able to get, get a bigger, bigger initiative over the line in the long run. I want to um, finish up by asking what is the biggest takeaway you've personally learned from your book and maybe also if it could be the same or different, what's one thing you hope others will take away from the book once they've read it? Well, the biggest takeaway ultimately is that there's reason for optimism. There's absolutely a reason for optimism. We can do it. Regardless of the problem, we can, we can absolutely solve it. There is, there is, um, we have the tools, we have the knowledge, we have, we, uh, as a human race, we know how to do this stuff. We just have to get out, get organized and, and do it. I mean, and there's absolutely reason for optimism in that regard. And what was the second question? <laughs> um, I think that's, you've basically answered it, but that was your takeaway. But is that mm. the same takeaway that you hope other people will take from the book? Well, I hope other people are, are optimistic. Yeah. But what I, what I also hope people to do, take away from the book is that they lift their heads up a little bit higher, look a bit further afield for inspiration because the inspiration's there, just, but the inspiration's not always in Australia. Um, it sometimes is on the other side of the world. And, and if we are prepared to look and learn from what others are doing, I think the, the optimism and the solutions and the, and the, and the, um, and the hope yeah, is absolutely there. That's uh, really well said. So for those who want to uh, purchase the book but also to learn more about you and your work, how can they connect? Yeah, so the book is called Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems and We Can Too. It's in all, all good bookshops at the moment. Um, they can look me up at uh, andrewweir.com or find, follow me on Twitter at Andrew Weir. Um, and uh, I look forward to hearing hearing from your audience. Uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for having me. Awesome. I hope you get flooded in positive emails with uh, much optimism. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Mike. Pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Great. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.